Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, December 2nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Merck's pill for COVID-19 once looked like it could change the face of the pandemic. Now experts are wondering whether it's worth using at all. STAT's Matthew Herper joins us to discuss. And it's not the only potential treatment for COVID-19. We talked to Emory University's Dr. Carlos Del Rio about the potential of Pfizer's antiviral pill and about how the emerging Omicron variant might change the global pandemic response. We'll start with some of the biggest news around the life sciences, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley of STAT. Each year, approximately 500,000 people worldwide are diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Currently, treatment options are limited for people who have relapsed. I'm here with Gina Laporte, Vice President, Global Head of Lymphoma and Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Development at Genentech. Gina, can you tell us about what Genentech is researching for people with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? Sure, Angus. We are researching several treatment options with different mechanisms of action and novel combinations in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. One area of research we're particularly encouraged by is bispecific antibodies, which are a form of immunotherapy designed to use the body's own immune system to destroy cancer cells. We're hopeful that our investigational antibodies will unlock new possibilities in patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. For more information, visit gene.com forward slash hematology that's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash hematology. So Damien, Meg, um, how long did it take you to pronounce Omicron? I had to do it on live television <laughs> before I had confirmed with anyone how it was supposed to be pronounced. Um, did you get but- it right? I got it right, actually, the first time, but I have found that it has gotten harder since then. Like, why do we all want to say Omicron? Yeah, that N. I've, I've been sticking that N in there. <laughs> it's difficult. But anyway, let's talk about why this variant has garnered so much attention in such a short period of time. Damien, do you want to walk us through what we know about it? I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> I can do it, too, but we, we got to jump in here and get this going. So, Meg, tell us about Omicron. Well, um, I first heard about this on Thanksgiving Day. Day, um, somebody messaged me. It was like, happy Thanksgiving. There's a terrifying new variant with a lot of mutations on Spike and we're really worried about it. Uh, and it really just got worse from there. I thought, okay, maybe I'll do a little preparation for Friday in case on, on TV I get asked a follow-up question about this emerging variant in South Africa. Um, and instead I was awakened you know, at 5 a.m. with a call from my bosses saying, the markets are down 800 points. We need you on television immediately. <laughs> um, the reason this is so alarming is the sheer number of of mutations, particularly in the spike protein. The spike protein, of course, being the thing that the vaccines delivered to our bodies to uh, help us make um, antibodies against it or deliver the genetic instructions for it. Um, It's the thing that allows the virus to infect cells. And so the idea that it could have so many different mutations could have implications for how transmissible it is and the 
protection that we get from prior infection, from the vaccines, uh, or from drugs like the antibody drugs. But all of these things are question marks right now. What we do know is that cases are rising quickly in South Africa in particular. Uh, We have seen the spread now to more than 20 countries, including on Wednesday, the first case detected in the United States. So far, it appears the disease generally has been mild, but experts point out that a lot of the early cases are in younger people and they often do have milder cases, so we can't draw any strong conclusions about that. It sounds like maybe by the end of next week, we should get some data on how well the vaccines hold up against it, but we're already hearing from people in the vaccine space that they are working on new Omicron-specific vaccines just in case they're needed. So, Damien, you know, the thing that struck me about this was, like, the the fact that the fear factor on this kind of went to 11 almost immediately, but also the fact that we don't know a lot about this new variant. What are the implications of that? I think those two things are intertwined. I mean, it's the mystery and the anxiety that that produces that I think is driving so much of the fear, because as Meg mentioned Based on what we know, I guess, molecularly about the the mutations uh, visible with the Omicron variant, it's it's alarming. It, there's a potential that vaccines and other treatments um, will be less effective, but it remains somewhat theoretical. We're still waiting on the data. It's possible, uh, for example, that, that the vaccines will provide adequate protection as they seem to have with other variants that have emerged. It's possible that booster doses, um, which are rolling out across this country and some others, uh, will basically extend the protection that we've seen with with sort of SARS-CoV-2 classic to Omicron. And then, you know, as, as vaccine companies have said, they are in the early stages of developing what would be an Omicron-specific vaccine if that were to end up being necessary. But I think, you know, in this moment, and, and I remember that Friday morning reading about this, it's it's difficult not to prepare yourself for the worst, even though based on what we know right now, it would be irresponsible to conclude um, that, you know, we're back to square one in the pandemic. I don't think any of any experts would would conclude that. And Meg, what have you heard from Pfizer, Moderna, you know, the other vaccine makers and, and, and other companies that are developing treatments for COVID? Well, so in the vaccine space, uh, it generally seems like they think it'll take them about three months to develop new Omicron-specific vaccines. Um, And then, of course, the the regulatory pathway is a bit of a question, and then how long it'll take to ramp up manufacturing, and then you have to redistribute new vaccines. And so it is getting you into, you know, the spring of 2022, uh, if that's even needed. You know, they're also looking at, as Damien said, whether booster doses are enough to provide protection against this variant. Um, We've also seen that there is an expectation that some of the antibody drugs, Eli Lilly's and Regeneron's in particular, could lose activity against this variant. Um, it's expected, though, that the Veer Biotech uh, slash GSK antibody um, should hold up against it. And so there is that one option. And then the antiviral drugs, which we're going to spend a lot of time on this episode talking about, don't uh, aren't expected to lose activity against uh, Omicron because they don't work in the spike protein. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of hope that these companies can work really quickly. But it's jarring to think that these vaccines we've depended so much on may lose efficacy against this variant. But it's an open question. Adam, I've been curious to know your reaction to this because I feel like, you know, of the three of us, you've been the most vocal of like, I am so done with this. I want to move on. You're planning to go to the JP Morgan conference. I saw you speculating with folks on Twitter this week 
just because some hotels seem to be changing, yeah. you know, yeah. tell us about just how you're thinking about the J.P. Morgan conference in January and this in general. You know, like you make, I, I read about this, this like the same time It's like right at Thanksgiving. And, you know, it it's kind of deflating, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I know I we had a sort of a sort of a moderate gathering of people for Thanksgiving. And, you know, it's the first Thanksgiving since 2019, right, that we've been able to gather. You know, last year, everyone had Thanksgiving on their own. So it's the holiday season and people are traveling a lot more now. Um, and so for this to come out now, I think it just it, it just it just feels like oh, we're rolling back down the hill again, you know, Um so it's it's just hard mentally to kind of process all of this. Um, getting to your point about J.P. Morgan, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of people are kind of trying to figure out what all of this means for for the gathering of the of the biotech horde in 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 the middle of January at, uh, in San Francisco. Um, you know, yesterday, uh, one of the larger hotels in San Francisco, uh, right outside Union Square, the Park Fifty Five Hotel, it's got it's got like a thousand rooms. Uh, they're shut down. Um, it's not really clear what's going on. If you call the hotel or you go to their website, it says that they've shut down temporarily because of COVID-related uh, activities or something like that. And and so uh, that's a problem because a lot of people stay at that hotel. It's not clear, you know, whether this is going to be more widespread or other hotels going to shut down. And you know, the first the first case of the Omicron virus, or at least the first known documented case. Uh, is occurring in a, in a person who lives in San Francisco. I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 I'm booked. I'm, 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 I've got a hotel and flights, and um, but whether I actually make it out there, whether the the conference switches over to a hundred percent virtual, uh, I think it remains to be seen. I, I kind of feel like it probably will, but uh, we haven't heard that yet from J.P. Morgan. Just reminds me of what Dr. Osterholm told us a couple weeks ago. This is the dawning of the age of the variants. <laughs> A panel of expert FDA advisors met on Tuesday to review clinical data on a COVID-19 antiviral pill from Merck. The debate during that all-day session was surprisingly intense, with a lot of concerns raised about the benefits and risks of the Merck pill, which is called molnupiravir. And at the end of the meeting, the final vote was really close. By a 13 to 10 margin, the experts decided that molnupiravir should be authorized. Even with the positive vote, the debate over molnupiravir and its use in treating COVID infections is likely to continue. Joining us to discuss Tuesday's meeting and what happens next is our stat colleague, Matthew Herper. Matt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Matt, you know, the initial efficacy readout on molnupiravir was quite good, and then Merck updated the results, and those looked demonstrably worse. So how did the experts on Tuesday's panel deal with this discrepancy? They had a lot of trouble dealing with it. Uh, there were a lot of comments about how they were having trouble grappling with the difference between the two halves of these studies. This happens in clinical trials where it looks um, better in one part and not another, but there was also no real explanation for what had changed about the patients. Um, and in the in the full study, the confidence intervals actually came down pretty far. So it wasn't like it, it could narrowly say what the benefit was. Uh, they, they real some of them really grappled with what the efficacy of the pill was or is. And you know, Matt, go over that. Tell us what are what did the final data look like? Well, so in the original study, you were looking at um, a fifty percent reduction in hospitalization, which was an absolute decrease of seven percent fewer people hospitalized. 
and the final results, it was a 30% decrease or a 3% absolute difference in hospitalization. That's a big difference. And, um, you know, the panel chair actually said, help me understand the, uh, there was, when they were discussing other topics, panelists kept going back to one said, the recent, whole reason we're having this discussion is because the efficacy of this product is not overwhelmingly good. It was a, it's a case where the differences between the interim analysis and the final analysis, even though the trial is statistically significant, mattered a lot to a lot of the panelists, that the, the estimate of how effective this drug matter, is matters. And then on top of that, you know, the, that final efficacy result, which you know, one panelist tweeted after James Hildreth was modest, there are these concerns about because of the way the drug works by sort of um, jumping into the virus replication cycle and, and uh, tricking it into replicating the wrong way, um, that this could lead to um, either the rise of new variants emerging or um, in the people themselves, if it's given to women of childbearing age, to birth defects, uh, or much longer term, hypothetically, to cancer down the line. How did the panel sort of grapple with the, these issues? Well, the birth defects is really uh, kind of the firmest of those conclusions. There was a, a, a Merck had been saying that they didn't think the drug should be given to pregnant women, but there were questions about how restrictive one should be with women of childbearing age. You know, did they need to be on birth control before? Do you need to do a pregnancy test? Uh, that kind of thing. Um, the panel was pretty concerned about that. They, they, there, several of them said that they didn't think that this should be given to pregnant women. There was some difference in agreement, but the, there was a real concern about that. The other issues, part of the problem was that they didn't have answers, but there were some panelists, James Hildreth in particular, was very worried about uh, creating new variants. Other people thought that it's not, it, it's it's really more how much virus is out there than these individual pressures that will create those variants. It's it's hard to know without more study. On the mutagenicity, the FDA had seemed very convinced that for a five-day course, the risk to an adult taking this of getting cancer years later or something was very low. But there were people on the panel who who thought that the test could have been run better and, and really seemed to want to see more data. So, um, you know, I think there's a, a, an important distinction between possible risks and the, uh, the birth defect risk, which at least in the animal models, there were some pretty clear signals about, particularly about bone growth and cartilage growth. And also, they're not talking about giving it to kids for that reason. One thing that struck me on the efficacy data, you know, the panelists seem to obviously fixate on the fact, as you illustrated, that that the drugs perceived efficacy seemed to get worse the longer the trial went on. But I think what really stood out was that Merck didn't seem to have a cogent explanation as to why. So I'm curious, between the panelists and the company itself, what are some of the theories as to uh, explaining Molnupiravir's apparent waning efficacy? They're kind of the theories that you always have in this case. Um, in the second half of the trial, more patients were from Europe so versus Latin America and Africa. So that could, uh, it could be something geographic or about the patterns of care there. It could always be regression to the mean. Interim analyses we know often give high estimates of efficacy. You don't, you don't stop a trial for a low estimate of efficacy, but you do stop it for a high estimate of efficacy. So this, this happens. So those are, those are 
kind of the leading possibilities. And you also have to ask about new strains of of COVID circulating. Um, I was surprised that Merck didn't have a clear answer. I was also surprised that they didn't address this in their presentation. I thought that was a strategic error, that it was obviously what the panel was going to want to know about, and they spent a lot of time talking about other stuff. So Matt, while the panel was discussing Molnupiravir, you know, we, we know that the Pfizer, you know, the competing Pfizer treatment, Paxlovid, has the interim data out there, uh, you know, showing 89 efficacy. And I'm wondering, how much did that impact the debate and the panel vote? I mean, did that come up at all during the session? It came up tangentially in that some panelists were kind of like, maybe you should reconsider this when there are other, when and if there are other drugs. Um, there is always the risk uh, with, you know, that's an interim analysis too. They can come down. This one came down a lot. I don't think we've seen this very often in other um uh, in other trials, but you do see these kind of patterns where things are different from one place to another. Um, the other thing that's really worth mentioning in Molnupiravir's favor is that the Pfizer drug does need to be combined with ritonavir. Ritonavir interacts with a lot of other drugs, so there's an argument out there um, made in, in one case by Umar Rafat at Evercore uh, that there's a role for this drug just in people who can't take um, Paxlovid because of other medicines that they're on. Um, so that is worth mentioning. That's interesting. And we'll get into that more, actually, with our upcoming guests on the on the show. Um, Matt, this, of course, was just a recommendation to the FDA. What does the agency do now? What do you expect to hear from them and when? And do you expect that the Pfizer drug will go to an advisory committee meeting as well? Or do you think the FDA might just act on it? Those are all great questions, and um, I, f- I feel almost more like I'm watching those as as indicators of where the FDA is with a lot of the movement we've seen and how the agency makes decisions um, than making predictions based on past behavior. Um, Pfizer has said that they haven't been approached about a panel. You'd think they would have been by now. I The FDA has been making these decisions quickly, but this panel was very much set up it was clear they, they did this panel because they were worried about things in the data. And then there was this 11th hour surprise of the efficacy changing. Um, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what they do in all of those cases. Uh, I'd be a little surprised if there's no approval at all from Molnupirvir, but this panel, if the FDA wants to, or no authorization, but if the, if the FDA does want to look for more data or wait for more analyses, the panel would certainly give them justification to do that. I think it probably gets authorized though. Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. We wanted to dig a little deeper into antiviral drugs for COVID-19, so we asked Emory University's Dr. Carlos Del Rio to join us this week. He is a distinguished professor of medicine, a professor of global health, and co-director of the Emory Center for AIDS Research, among many other titles. Dr. Del Rio, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Happy to be with you. So first, what did you make of the panel vote on malnupiravir? Uh, Were you surprised it was so close? Well, not necessarily. Again, I have not yet seen the data, and uh, but the you know I've seen the package that was submitted. I think malnupiravir has a, a, a role to play. 
I'm, you know, I think we, we, we desperately need oral drugs to treat this disease. And it was closed, but it's not, you know, again, at the end of the day, it's a recommendation that passed. And, and in that sense, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with that. I will start by saying, you know, um, uh, Malnipuravir, just for, for complete transparency, was developed uh, by colleagues here at Emory. Uh, uh, George Painter and many others were involved in developing this, this drug. So I have not been involved in any way in its development or in its, in its uh, testing. So I'm totally speaking based on what I know about the drug, but I, I think having oral drugs for the treatment of COVID is something that we really need, and I'm very excited that we're finally getting some of them uh, available. What did you make of the efficacy of the drug, and particularly that when the full trial results were presented on Friday, or at least reported in Merck's press release, the efficacy in preventing severe disease and death seemed to go down to 30% from 50%, which we saw at the interim look. Uh, and some of the panel members seemed to think that was just a modest benefit. How, how useful will this drug be, do you think, based on that data? Well, you know, again, uh, uh, Meg, you know, the... Remdesivir has a very modest benefit, and yet when you have a pandemic with millions of people infected, a modest benefit may be very significant. If you can decrease hospital admissions by 30%, I'll take it. I I think it's, you know, it may not be perfect, but it'll be very important. We also don't know, I haven't seen data on what impact it has on viral load and nasal secretions. Does it impact transmission? I think that will be also very important. A study uh, that I saw at Croy. Uh, you know, earlier this year seemed to suggest that that was the case. So again, you know, it may be that this is one of the many drugs that becomes available. And as I said, right now, we really have not a lot of things available. You have monoclonal antibodies, but monoclonal antibodies, as you probably are aware, are, are very complex, are, are hard to administer, and I think have been grossly underutilized in great part because of how complex they are. If we can get a drug into people uh, quickly and prevent them, you know, a 30% decrease may, be, may not be bad. So a lot of the conversation about molnupiravir was on the balance between benefit and risk. And so I was curious what you made of the risks that, you know, real or or even hypothetical, specifically, you know, mutagenicity, which could result potentially in birth defects and potentially, potentially uh, cause cancer in the long term. How do you kind of balance, in your mind, the potential benefit of drugs like these with with the risks that may that they may bring? It's difficult to know what exactly is going to happen. I think those studies and the, the data of potential uh, immunogenicity is something to be concerned about. But, you know, will there, would the drug be approved uh, with a uh, with a black box warning saying don't use it in, in pregnant women or don't use it in women in reproductive age? I mean, there are many other drugs that we use in those circumstances. With any medication, I think about cancer drugs. You know, you always weigh the risk-benefit ratio of giving a medication. There's no medication that is entirely uh, free of problems, right? So Pfizer's antiviral uh, Paxlovid showed 89% efficacy in preventing hospitalizations and deaths from COVID in its trial last month. What are your impressions of that drug? I'm excited about that drug, too. I think I, I go back to what I said at the beginning. Having drugs that we can use to... Uh, Oral drugs to treat COVID, in my mind, is is critically, critically important and something that I want to see uh, more of. And uh, this drug is is a drug that, again, is a, is a protease inhibitor. I think the data that we have seen so far in press releases, in their initial press release, uh, you know, looks looks good. And I think this may change just like it did in Wellness with the final data set. So we need to see the final data set. 
My biggest worry with with uh, with this drug is is that it's is you know it requires a drug called uh, ritonavir. Ritonavir is a drug that we've used in HIV for for a long time, and the problem with ritonavir is that it has a uh, significant drug-drug interactions. So giving this drug is not going to be easy. You're going to, you need to know what to do and you're going to need to know how to manage this drug. But again, it, it's, it's worth having oral drugs for treatment of COVID. I, I think that not only will we have these two drugs, but other drugs will be developed in the, in the ensuring, uh, uh, months. And I think it's, it's critically important, not only here in the United States, but globally to have oral drugs that we can use for the treatment of, of, of COVID. Now, the challenge is that both these drugs require administration within, you know, five days. They, they require administration very quickly. So we really need to also think about how do we get people tested quickly and how do we get people treated right away? And that's going to be the implementation, I think, is going to be, to me, the most challenging part of using these medications. I want to dig more into that uh, ritonavir angle of Paxlovid um, because it's not something that we hear a lot about. Can you tell us some of the um, other medicines that interact with ritonavir? And in your experience, how do you manage that? And do you expect that you know, this will be prescribed by telemedicine. You know, it's not going to be specialists in HIV who know this drug so well. So will this be manageable? Well, again, you know, there's over 600 medications that interact with ritonavir. So so this is not uh, something simple. I think, you know, uh, the pharmacist may be the best person. Some of those interactions are major. They produce, uh, you know, ritonavir is, a, is, a, is an inhibitor of, of cytochrome P450. And by doing that, it inhibits the metabolism of, of drugs. Some of the drugs, for example, some of the uh, lipid-lowering drugs, let's say uh, Lipitor, is one of the drugs that, that has this interaction. But drugs like OxyContin also have interaction with ritonavir. So I think it's something that, again, it, it could be managed by, by, by a pharmacist. It could be managed. It doesn't need to be an HIV specialist, but it needs to be somebody who at least can look at the person's medications and say, hey, this person should not take the drug, or if they're going to take this drug, they need to suspend their lipid-lowering drug or what other, drug, what other drug they're taking, which potentially can have drug-drug interactions. So kind of taking all of that into account, as you mentioned, the potential contraindications from molnupiravir, the issues about drug-drug interactions with ritonavir and thus Paxlovid, just basically given all the quirks of these medicines, do you think they're going to be more complicated to roll out to general populations around the world than is like currently appreciated by those of us who kind of see the headline data and think like, oh, now there's a pill for COVID nineteen? Oh, absolutely. I think I think the you know the the challenges in the implementation as always, right? I mean, monoclonal antibodies are great, but we have had trouble rolling out monoclonals because of the implementation. So always uh, implementation, you know, is, is where the rubber meets the road for anything. And as I said here, the, the rubber meets the road is, is going to start with, you got to get tested right away. As soon as you have symptoms, you got to be started on therapy right away. Uh, and, and that's, you know, five days go very quickly. I am hopeful that with the new initiative announced by the White House today in making more rapid tests available, that maybe, you know, you could be tested at home if you start having symptoms. And if you have starts having symptoms and gets tested at home, then you can go to your local drugstore, you can go to your local, you know, uh, urgent care center and be started on therapy if you're eligible for the medication right away. And what's your view on making these treatments available for people who are both vaccinated or unvaccinated? As, as we know, these the drugs were not tested in people who had the vaccine. We we need to get the data, right? That's the, some of the data that obviously a lot of us are very interested in seeing. And hopefully we will see in the in the ensuring uh, 
you know, weeks, two months. I think we need to see once once it, the drugs receive approval and we start seeing seeing how they're being used, then we can go ahead and decide what uh, what we do about them, right? And how do we implement them and how do we use them and what do we do to make them really be able to do what we need them to do. One of the things we didn't uh, talk about with uh, molnupiravir uh, is a risk that some scientists have flagged that it could lead to the creation of uh, more dangerous new variants. Uh, Rustam Ismagilov, a scientist at Caltech, testified at the FDA about this um, and has pointed out that it doesn't take you know, a lot of these uh, to happen. If you're giving these this drug to millions of people, just a few rare events could give rise to new variants like Omicron. How how worried are you about that potentially happening? Well, you know, those of us that work in HIV know that that an effective way of getting mutations happening is to have antiviral therapy that is not fully suppressive, right? When you have a treatment for HIV and you don't fully suppress the viral load, then you have the development of mutations. The best, the most effective way to 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 block the development of mutations is to decrease the viral load down to zero. So there's no viral replication. We need to understand, I need to see the data. I don't know how much uh, suppression of viral replication this drug is, is capable of achieving. And, uh, and that is something that's going to be important. But obviously, at the end of the day, uh, the way to best prevent the development of mutations is to stop transmission of the virus. So zooming out from antivirals, but on the topic of, of Omicron, how how concerned are you generally about the, the rise of that variant, its emergence around the world, and its potential to change the global pandemic response and the efficacy of vaccines? Well, you know, I will start by saying first that we, we cannot lose our sight in the fact that we still have a significant problem uh, globally and in our country, not with Omicron, but with uh, with Delta, right? I mean, we are seeing a, a huge uh, rise in, in cases in many states, primarily among unvaccinated individuals. But, you know, I was talking to colleagues in Michigan the other day, yesterday, and they were talking about how their hospitals are being overrun by, by, by patients, uh, the great majority of them unvaccinated. Uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, you know, Colorado are seeing similar things. So I think we need to remind ourselves that we still have in our country, you know, close to 100,000 cases being diagnosed each day and close to 1,000 people dying of COVID on a daily basis. And that's with Delta alone. So we don't need Omicron to have a problem in our country. We have a problem with Delta as it is. Um, so let's not let's worry about the problem we have, not the problem we could have. Could Omicron th- change things? Absolutely. But I think the questions that we need to understand with Omicron uh, are still not there. You know, at this point in time, the little information we're getting is, you know, it infects individuals, but I'm not seeing a huge increase in severe disease. We saw this person coming in, uh, diagnosed in, in California just yesterday. And, you know, the individual is fully vaccinated, yet he tested positive, but he's not sick. He's not in the hospital. He's doing okay. So if that's what Omicron is going to do, I'll take it, right? If Omicron increases infections, but decreases severity of disease, that's that's actually not a bad thing to have. Dr. Del Rio, thanks uh, so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Before we go, we wanted to tell you about a live event that STAT is putting on next week, December 9th, here in New York City. We will be joined to discuss all things COVID-19 by Celine Gounder, an epidemiologist at NYU, as well as John Moore, who's a virologist at Weill Cornell University. And then we'll talk to investor Eli Kasdan about the 
interesting state of biotech stocks as we close out 2021. If you'd like to join us, you can pick up your ticket by going to statnews.com and clicking on events. Hope to see you there. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and how you pronounce Omicron. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 